0: We're really lucky tonight to have three figures at the forefront of the reproductive science revolution. Uh, We're going to talk about three-parent babies. We're going to talk about gene editing and fundamental research on human embryos that's testing uh, ethical boundaries. Uh, We're going to have three quick presentations from each speaker, a little discussion between us, Uh, and then we're going to open up to you to your questions. And please uh, do come forward with questions. It's always the most interesting thing. So let's move to our very first speaker. We're right at the fundamental end of the spectrum. Uh, She works in Cambridge with Professor Magdalena Zernika-Gertz on very fundamental embryo research, studying the first few days of life. Uh, Marta Shabati was the first author of a very highly publicized paper. First author, by the way, in scientific jargon, means did all the hard work. Um, And in that paper, they described how they doubled the time that human embryos can be grown in the laboratory without any maternal tissues, which has got very important implications for understanding development. So without any further ado, please welcome Marta.
1: Thank you very much. It's really a great pleasure to be here today, and good evening to everyone. So, yeah, let's start. So let me start with a historical picture. This is actually the first human IVF ever done, which was done in 1969 at the University of Cambridge, exactly in the same building where I'm working now. So you can see the egg, you can see the sperm, and the sperm is about to fertilize the egg. And once the egg will be fertilized, it will start dividing from one cell to two cells, four cells, eight cells, and so on. This would be day four of human development. Now, by day five, the embryo will start making a central cavity that you can see now. And you can appreciate that it's surrounded by a protective cover, that it will be broken, the embryo will come outside, this is day six, and now it's ready to implant in the uterus. So we can take these embryos and transfer them to mothers. What happens next with the embryo? Well, the answer is we don't really know. And we don't really know because we are taking these embryos and putting them in the mother. So we lose them, we cannot see them anymore, we cannot study them anymore. And this is the reason why implantation has been termed the black box of development. It's probably the most difficult stage to study, simply because we cannot see the embryo anymore. So we thought, well, maybe we can culture the embryo for longer period in vitro without the need to have the uterus of the mother. And that's exactly what you can see here. We developed the right conditions for human embryos to be grown in vitro, beyond the point at which they should be implanting in the mother. And they do this without the need of any maternal tissues. They are able to attach to the dish, and then we can color the different cells of the embryo in different colors and analyze them, see what type of structures they are forming. And indeed, when we look at them in detail, we can see that they are very similar to monkey embryos at the equivalent stages. So we know these embryos are properly developing in culture. And until when can we keep these embryos growing on the dish? Well, the slide says until day 13. So what happens in day 14, 15, 16? Well the answer is that national and international guidelines recognize the day 14 as the limit, ethical limit, to the culture of human embryos in vitro. So all our experiments were stopped before this limit. So in summary, we have extended the time we can grow the embryos in the lab, from day seven to day 13. And this is important because we have learned first that the human embryo has the intrinsic capability to continue the development without the need of the mother, at least for these few extra days. And this property in scientific terms is called self organization. And you may be thinking, so why is this important? What can we do now? Well, actually, around 30 to 70 percent of pregnancies fail at implantation. Implantation is a really critical stage in development. But now we have for the first time the opportunity to see the embryos and to study them. So this method will help us to understand the causes of early pregnancy loss. Thank you. Thank, you.
0: Thank you. So, moving closer to the clinic, our second speaker is Dr. Nora Fogarty. She works with Kathy Nyacken at the Crick in London on genome editing techniques. And you might have heard of a technique called CRISPR, uh, trying to make very precise alterations to the human genetic code. Uh, Nora again was a first author on a milestone paper, published not that long ago, just a few weeks ago, that marked the first time that genome editing was used to study the way that genes work in human embryos. So now over to Nora.
2: Good evening. So in our lab, we're really interested in looking at the molecular mechanisms involved in early human embryo development. And to do this, we uh, started a study recently where we wanted to see could we use genome editing in the human embryo. So before we had done this study, we didn't even know if this technique would work in the human embryo. So this was the first time that a lab had been granted a license to use genome editing in human embryos. So just to give you a quick background on genome editing, so our genome describes the collection of all of the genes in our body, and the genome is contained in every single cell. And then the gene is the sequence of DNA which will encode a specific protein. So when we talk about genome editing, this is um, a set of molecules that we can use to make changes to the genome or to genes. And the technique that we used is called CRISPR-Cas9. And in this tool, the CRISPR-Cas9 is honed to a specific site of the DNA, where it will then induce a break in the DNA. And then in all of our cells, we have DNA repair mechanisms, which make sure that we are able to repair DNA so that we're not damaging it. But this machinery is faulty, so sometimes you get extra bits of DNA added in or bits missing. So when we're using genome editing, we're relying on the the cell to make mistakes. So when it makes a mistake, the gene is then rendered inactive, and we can then begin to study its function. So we were interested in looking at the cells which are labeled here in green. So this uh, green is labeling the protein Oct4. And this is the protein that we wanted to use genome editing to knock out its function. We were really interested in looking at OCT4 because this marks the cells that will go on to make the the baby. So at this stage, which is day six, there are about 200 cells in the embryo, but it's only about 8% of the cells, which are the cells labeled in green, which will go on to make the fetus. So we're really intrigued, like what is special about these 8% of cells in comparison to the rest of the cells in the embryo. And also, we know that OCT4 is really important for human embryonic stem cells. So, again, it's these green cells that express OCT4, which we can culture to make human embryonic stem cells. So, we used CRISPR Cas9 to inactivate OCT4. So, in this video here, it's showing the um, the way that we injected the genome editing tools into the human embryo. So this is a human zygote, which was donated to us by patients who had undergone IVF, and they had embryos that were surplus to their family building. So this microinjection needle will inject the CRISPR-Cas9 into the two pronuclei. So these are the male and female pronuclei, which will then fuse to give the fertilized, um, will give the, uh, the zygote. So we inject in the CRISPR-Cas9 and then we culture the embryo and look to see how its development is affected. So on the, the far side of the panel, we can see our control embryo. So here we see again that the one cell embryo will divide into a two cell and a four cell embryo. It continues to divide and then it begins to compact and then again, we see the formation of the cavity. And then the blastocyst will really nicely expand. And then eventually, this will hatch. However, when we use genome editing to inactivate OCT4, we can see that the embryo, it still undergoes the early cleavage events. So it goes from two cells to four cells to eight cells. It begins to compact we see the emergence of this cavity, but then instead of the embryo really expanding nicely, we see it undergoing iterative cycles of collapsing in on itself, and it's never able to form a nice blastocyst. So this suggests to us that OCT4 is really fundamental to human blastocysts and that human embryos need OCT4 to develop properly. And then also when we look at these embryos in terms of the different molecules that they're expressing, we can see that The embryos which have been edited for OCT4 are really messed up. They're not expressing the right proteins in the right cell types. So again, on the um, right of this slide, we can see that the edited embryo, it doesn't have the same number of cells, it's not expressing OCT4, and it's not expressing another really important protein called NANOG. So this shows to us that we can use genome editing to look at a gene that we think is important in the human embryo and we can get, gain insights about its function. And this is going to be a really powerful tool for us to unravel really important genes in the human embryo.
0: Fantastic, thank you. Thank you, Nora. So now our final speaker, Professor Sir Doug Turnbull of Newcastle University, a neurologist and an expert on mitochondrial disorders. Uh, who's been at the forefront of efforts for more than a decade to prevent these serious genetic diseases by the creation of what's popularly called three-parent babies. Uh, Over to Doug.
3: Good evening. I'm a slight fraud here in the fact that I'm not an embryologist. I'm a clinical doctor and I spend most of my time looking after patients. And I look after patients with a group of diseases which are called mitochondrial diseases. Now I'll explain a little bit about those. Um, and I've looked after these patients. And we look after about 900 patients in Newcastle. This is a genetic condition that affects about 1 in 5,000 of the population. And the reason why we started this work, and Roger said about, about 10 years ago, this we first met, I first met this lady in the late 1990s, and it's over 15 years we've been working on this. And this poor lady had six pregnancies where her child died within 48 hours of birth. And as you can see there, she does apparently have one child that you can see on the um, top right-hand picture, who then subsequently you can see later in life, who had a severe neurodegenerative brain disease and died. So you've got something which is severe, we can't treat. And what do, par- what do patients want? They would like not to pass that on to their children. So what are mitochondrial des- what are mitochondria? Well, mitochondria are the powerhouses, or the batteries of our cells. They convert the food we eat into energy. So you can imagine, if you don't have functioning mitochondria, you can't. many systems just won't work. Now, mitochondria uniquely in the body actually contain their own DNA. So that DNA is within the mitochondria. It's important for making the mitochondria. And completely uniquely, it's only passed down from mother to child. So all of us here have our mother's mitochondrial DNA. We don't get any mitochondrial DNA from our father's. So what happens if you've got mitochondrial DNA disease? Well, all the organs that you think are highly dependent on energy metabolism, like your brains, your muscles, your heart, the beta cells in your pancreas that controlled insulin, they all go wrong. And as I say, this is a relentlessly progressive condition in some patients, and we have no cure. So we're in a situation where at the time we thought, well, well what can we do about it? And the idea here in this cartoon, and I I realize it's a a slightly complicated cartoon, so I'm actually going to show a little video that actually describes it. So what we wanted to do was, in effect, to use a technique which we call mitochondrial donation. We get a donor oocyte, a donor zygote, where that woman donates her mitochondria with the healthy mitochondrial DNA. Whereas we put the nuclear DNA, which contains all the information that makes us, comes from the parents. So it really is about making sure that we've got a donor mitochondrial DNA, but the nuclear DNA from both parents. And this is just a video of the technique, um, and I'll just talk you through it. So as you can see, the two pronuclei are the bits that actually are the nucleus of the cell, the bit that has all that information. And you can see that the embryologist, Louise Hislop here, is just taking out one of those pronuclei. So imagine this is an egg from a woman with mitochondrial DNA mutation. She goes back in and gets the other pronucleus, And in effect, what she's doing is removing the nuclear DNA while leaving the unhealthy mitochondria in the egg. Now, um, when we put this back, we have to use a kind of uh, um, chemical to make the embryo work again. And that's called HVJ. And you can see those pronuclei going back into an egg from a donor woman where she doesn't have mitochondrial disease. As you can see, they're put in. And what I really like is Louise in. Okay, So this is work that we started back in 2001. We've gone through numerous hurdles. Roger reminded me it was 2007 that he first wrote about this technique. And over that time, we've been doing science. But much of the time has actually been spent actually involved in public engagement events like this, trying to persuade and trying, well, not persuade, but discuss with, with ministers and with the general public is whether or not this is an acceptable technique. And after an exhaustive process over five years, this was debated in both Houses of Parliament. The debates were overwhelmingly in favor of mitochondrial donation. And this was passed into law in 2015. Now, what we don't really appreciate, and I'm not sure that you in the audience would appreciate this, is that we are a very tightly regulated environment. We have a statutory regulatory authority. Some countries don't have any regulation. We've got probably the best regulation anywhere in the world because it's been very carefully thought through. So we were allowed to move forward with this, but we had further hurdles to pass. So where are we? Well, we're at a situation where we do have a license to carry this out in Newcastle. And I think one of the things I always say to people is, you know, it's not just an IVF technique. In fact, it's not an IVF technique. It's a whole pathway of care. You know, there are different reproductive options available for them. We've got to take and discuss those those options in great detail with the women involved. It's really important to know what the risks and what the advantages of this could be. Of course, we have the donor. And we've got to consider this donor. What would you feel, the young women in the audience, thinking about donating your eggs for mitochondrial donation? What would you think about what what relationship you should have to that child, for example? So all those things are being considered. And most importantly, we've got to think about the babies. So what is the outcome and these babies? And in fact, the way in which it's been funded is that we have a study to look at the developmental outcome at 18 months. So this is a process that we've heard from Nora and Marta about work which is still at the science level. But you can see how these advances in IVF are able to go from the science right through to actually offering something that is really helpful for patients and for families. And I think we're in a very fortunate situation of living in a country which allows open debate about
0: this. Thank you very much. We're just going to just talk through some of the, the bigger issues among ourselves and then open up to you for, for questions. But I think the first thing to open with is how important it was, um, the very first IVF with Louise Brown. She was born on the 25th of July, 1978, in Oldham General Hospital. It was very controversial at the time. Steptoe and Edwards were being accused of being Frankensteins. There was a lot of angst about it. Um, and yet, um, many years later, Edwards would get the Nobel Prize. Um, give, give me a sense of how important that moment was. Um, I mean, let, let, let's start with Doug because you, you can probably remember yeah, it. Yeah, I, I can guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.
3: These two were far too young. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I think it's really it's been the legacy. You know, it's a legacy of that scientific achievement, um, and it, it, it's been a legacy in two ways. It's been it's been a God sent to women that you know have been unable to have children any other way. I you know, we've done a lot of work with pet patients about people wanting their own biological child, whereas you know, obviously, you could adopt children, but people have wanted their own biological child. So I think it's been a breakthrough that way. It, I've only talked about one technique that you can use to prevent a transmission of disease, which is obviously important. But it's also had a legacy, because following on from that, we got the HFA, the Human Fertilisation Embryology Act, which has allowed regulation in this area, which has given us um, a way in which this can be done in a, in a proper scientific way, under proper scientific and public scrutiny.
0: If, if you could time travel, if you could take the HFEA and whiz them back 40 years... To when Stepto and Edwards were doing the first IVF. Do you think the HFEA would have approved it? Um,
3: I, I, I think everybody would say that it would never have been approved at yeah. this stage. Um, I, I, I think you know, for our mitochondrial donation work, um, it's the only IVF procedure which has been properly looked at. Um, public consultations, um, four Different independent scientific reviews, so independent scientists reviewing all the evidence, um, debates in House of Co- House of Parliament, both Houses of Parliament. So that's come in, and I think I think we all know that some of the advances happened without that regulation. Um, does it make it more difficult? Yes, it does to do that now. But I personally think that, as somebody, but. Is well aware of how controversial this research is. For people to know it's done in a very well-regulated environment, which is mm. properly considered,
0: is really important. And Marta, and Nora, you you both uh, deal with human embryos. Now you just mentioned that. Um, I mean, you you alluded, uh, you know, Nora, to how um, it was done uh, with excess IVF embryos but this is not a trivial matter is it getting hold of human embryos getting approval i mean can you both give us just a a little flavor of of the hurdles you've got to overcome to to get this work done
2: yeah like the paperwork so i don't do the paperwork but i know from my boss that Mm. it's a lot of paperwork that's involved you have to come up with your project proposal which then gets reviewed by ethics committees which are made up of lay people religious leaders politicians um and you have to show that the research that you're doing is fitting in in with the aims of the hfea you have to show that the people doing the experiments have the right expertise and training um all of our consent documents are reviewed by the same committees um so the paperwork even just to get the license is very involved and then there's a lot of work with the IVF clinics, because there's also a lot of work on behalf of the IVF clinics to coordinate getting the embryos from people who've don- donated them to our lab. So you have to get the IVF clinics on board. And then from the patients, they go through a lot of counseling uh, to see if they would like to donate their embryos. Um, um,
1: yeah. Maybe I, w- I would like to emphasize the concept of informed consent. Yeah. Is really informed to the level of the patient choosing which project to donate their embryos. So in, in my particular case, the patients knew we were going to take those embryos at day five, thaw them, and culture them beyond day seven. That was the objective. So it's really informed, and they can change their mind anytime.
0: So one technical detail I want to highlight that I saw in a couple of the presentations, you talked about pronuclei. And I always find this really interesting because from my very basic understanding of embryology, a lot of people will tell you that an individual is born the moment that a sperm docks with an egg. But in fact, the genetic... You know, we're all mixtures of our mum and dad's genetic material. But in fact, for the very first moments in life, they sit in separate capsules, these pronuclei. So an individual isn't really born at that point, is it? Because you haven't got a mixture of your mother and father's DNA. And I think what's amazing about this research is it's always challenging old dogmas about life and what do we mean by an individual and so on. I mean, am I I recalling this correctly?
3: Yes, you are from another non ivF expert <laughs> <laughs> but, but but yes, i mean to, to be i mean it doesn 't mix until you get to the two cell stage i mean that 's a very big you can actually see i mean say Nora showed a picture and we showed a picture. You can actually see the pro individual pronuclei down a microscope it 's
0: not they are very clear structures. Mm-hmm. And when the two cell stage, how, how old is the, how long does it take the embryo to get to the two cell stage? That must be your territory, Marta, I think.
1: Yeah, no, this is about a day. But one thing that I wanted to say regarding the question of when we have individualism, this relates to the day 14 rule that I yeah. mentioned during my presentation. So maybe some of you are wondering why day 14, why we can only culture embryos until day 14, why they put that day. And actually, before day 14, an individual embryo can split into two and give rise to twins. So if we are talking about individualism, that would be day 14.
0: There was always a lot of talk about the primitive streak developing and things like that. Now, that primitive streak is like the very first glimmer of a nervous system. I doubt there's much thinking going on, but how does that fit into the 14-day...
1: Yeah, so at day 14, as I said, well, it would be the limit... For twinning, but also at day 14 there is a specific structure that is forming the embryo, that's the primitive streak, is when cells start to decide, start, just start to decide whether they will be neurons or whether they will be muscle. This first decision is taken at that moment. So we have to stop the cultures before we reach that point.
0: And we talk about test tube babies, but presumably we're always talking about Petri dishes in incubators and things like that, um, rather than a test tube, just to clear this up for uh, in case anyone wondered I mean what 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 does it look like the hardware to do these things? Yes,
2: yeah, so it's just a, a plastic dish, and then we have drops of media, which is just the solution containing sugars and amino acids. And then, yes, we have the, the dish and then a few little drops. And then the embryos will be in individual drops. And then that's covered with a layer of mineral oil so that we don't get evaporation. Um, but, yeah, it's not like a, a test yeah. tube. The other the thing that's
0: come out s- striking for, for someone who's not familiar with these techniques is you're doing this very fine cellular surgery. And We saw it with, with your technique, Doug, and with the, getting the CRISPR technique. I mean... Is is there someone with very steady hands holding a pipette? Or is there an enormous <laughs> machine around there do, doing the cellular surgery?
2: Um, it's a combination of the both. So we have a, an air table which basically absorbs vibrations so that you're not getting vibrations in the little drops. And we use uh, an apparatus called a micro manipulator, which basically is like two robotic arms and they hold the needles. But then you control them with like joysticks, so everything's done looking down the microscope with these micro manipulators. So yeah, it's uh, hand-eye coordination. Yeah. So, so
3: I, I would agree. It, it, it just you've got to have highly skilled people to do it, yeah. and, and one of the one of the um, conditions on our licence is that there is an appropriately trained individual mm-hmm. able to do it. So Louise Hislop that does that is an embryologist of many years' experience of handling embryos, used to doing it, getting good, reproducible results. So, yes, there is technology, but there's still very much a human factor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I can remember visiting the lab in the Roslyn where they made Dolly the sheep, and they had a kind of factory of micro-manipulating hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of... Um, uh, sheep eggs and so on to create dolly. So it was quite a in a rather horrible little room, I seem to remember. It must have been pretty oppressive uh, work doing that. Let, let's now move on to just wh- where you... The next milestones that you uh, are facing in your own research, just quickly... I think, Doug, for you, it's pretty obvious You're you're now looking towards the birth of the first three-parent baby, but patient confidentiality and all that, I suppose you can't really tell as much about it, can you? I I can't say anything about it. Um, um, I I, I think,
3: from my perspective, as a clinician, um, and looking after patients, I I think we want to be in a situation where we provide reproductive choice for families. I think that's what we're asking. That's what the parents and the families say, that they want to be able to make those choices. Uh, I, I think it's up to us as clinicians uh, and scientists to provide them with those choices in the limits that society lets us. And I think that's one of the issues that is, is interesting, is that clearly society was very happy that the limit was fine with mitochondrial donation. And I think that always has to be considered. But the whole idea that people that have inherited genetic disease for which there is no current cure might have the option to try and prevent that happen, Mm. which they do with some techniques now, I think is is absolutely great. And I think it may be more of an option in the future.
0: So, Nora, with your research, you've now just shown the importance of one of the 20,000 genes in the body for the that the development... I mean, what people often don't realise is the early embryo, a lot of it turns into the placenta and so on. Only a l- little bit of it turns into the baby. What's what's the next key milestones in your research?
2: Yeah, so as I said... Um We now know that genome editing is this really powerful tool that we can use to study any gene in the human embryo and look at its function. And this is really important because until now, a lot of what we know about human embryo development comes from studies in the mouse because you can do different experiments in the mouse embryo that are just not practical to do in the human embryo. But we now know that there's there's total differences between the mouse and the human embryo. So it's really important to study the human embryo in itself. Um, so now we have this tool that we can just look at any gene that we're interested in. Um, so I'm really interested in the placental cells, so I want to now start looking at what genes are involved in making the cells that will go to become the placenta. Whereas what the people in my lab would be interested in the the green cells. Um, right. Yeah.
0: And, and, Marta, on the very basic front, I mean, a couple of, uh, of you have mentioned stem cells, and I suppose what we should say is that the, the very early... Um, those green cells, they are what's called uh, totipotent stem cells, I seem to remember. They've got the ability to develop into any cell in the body. And just tell us a little bit about... You, you've decided to forget about making embryos with eggs and sperm and tried to make embryos just with stem cells in your not your own work but in your laboratory
1: yeah so uh, as i said there is a limitation to the use of embryos for research also there is a limitation well first in terms of manipulation but also in terms of time we cannot go beyond day 14 so we cannot study this process of primitive primitive streak formation that we mentioned before and really this is the key moment when the head is formed the Tail is formed like when the body shape is determined. So how can we study this process? So us, like mm, mm, the lab where I work and other groups, are trying to mimic these processes using stem cells. And stem cells have the ability to make heart, to make neurons, to make bone. We just have to find the right conditions to tell them what to do and when to do it. And maybe this will allow us to use stem cells to reproduce certain aspects of the embryo. And this is what nowadays is called synthetic embryos. It's reproducing certain aspects of the embryo using stem cells.
0: Now, I seem to remember the, re- the recipe for, a, for a, a basic embryo has got three sorts of early stem cells, and you've made an artificial embryo with two of those
1: yes. sorts so far. that was a mouse embryo. For the human, we are really far away, because at the moment, we only have the stem cells of the embryonic cells. We don't have stem cells of the placenta, for example, or the third type, so we wouldn't be able to mix them together. So there are lots of challenges for the future ahead of us.
0: Well, I think before I open up to the audience, let's just have one last answer from our Three distinguished guests, just trying to look into the future, maybe not 40 years, because that feels a little bit too far off, a little bit too sci fi, but in the next decade or so, could you each give me a sense of what striking development in reproductive uh, science and medicine you expect to see? Maybe Doug, we'll start with you. I, I, I mean,
3: as I say, I'm not an IVF, well, an embryologist, somebody studying. I do think. I always come back to what I do, which is look after patients. And I just think, where do I see this going? I do think there are going to be many more options for patients in the next few years. And I think that's great. I think IVF, you know, IVF has been, you know, when Roger says five, ten million babies born by IVF, and and it's enhanced many people's lives, I think that I'd like to see it be able to enhance more people's lives, in particular those who've got inherited genetic disease.
0: Nora?
2: Um, So we want to use genome editing to figure out the genes that are really important in the human embryo. Um, and as Marta said, uh, the majority of embryos will fail in the first seven days. So we hope that by using this tool, we can figure out what genes are required for normal development. So that will aid our basic understanding. But building on that, we hope that in the future, we can then begin to understand what genes are affected when embryos fail to implant, or what genes are affected in miscarriage. Um, so So this tool is a really small step but we think it's just going to build up the bigger picture of of development Um, and then we can apply this knowledge to hopefully refine IVF methods um, to understand uh, early, placenta, uh, early pregnancy failure and then maybe in the future they could come up with therapies maybe to uh, combat that and then also because we'll be revealing the genes that are important for stem cell formation we can improve the different types of stem cells that we have which again will be able to help with therapies um, but I think um, those long-term aims are very much in the future and we're just beginning to build up the, the
1: puzzle of the black box
0: what do you expect to
2: see?
1: Yes, so I think one important question is still in the field is which embryo we transfer to the woman. So after undergoing an IVF procedure, there will be many embryos and we have to choose the best. So which embryo is the best? And I think that the method we have developed may help us uh, to identify predictors. So we will have embryos that develop well in culture and em- embryos that fail to develop. What is the difference between these two groups? And if we identify the difference, then in the clinical setting, we may be able to say, this is a good embryo, we should choose this one over that other embryo.
0: In fact, before we open up to the audience, could, I, could we talk a little bit about the boss of your laboratory, uh, Magda Zernika yeah. Gertz, because she, there was a very dramatic example of this where she, I mean, this is public knowledge, so I'm not giving anything away, but she had a late pregnancy. Um, she had chorionic villus uh, biopsy. It came up as chromosomally abnormal. Uh, she faced that quandary that a lot of mothers face, should I go ahead with the pregnancy? She did, and her son Simon was born normally. Then you decided to investigate in the laboratory, and you, you discovered something quite unexpected.
1: Yes, yeah, so the, the first study was done in the mouse. For us, is it's ve- the strategy we follow is we do a study in the mouse and this is the basic knowledge that then we apply to the human. So in the mouse, it was found that when an embryo is a mix of normal cells and abnormal cells, in certain cases, the normal cells can compensate for the abnormal ones. So the abnormal ones are eliminated. It's like the embryo self-correcting itself. It depends, for example, on the proportion of normal cells to abnormal cells. But this definitely happens in mouse embryos. So this is something that we are very interested in looking at in in the context of human embryos. So if we have a human embryo that is a mix of normal cells and abnormal cells, now we can culture these embryos for longer and see actually if the abnormal cells will be eliminated. And I will just add one more thing. There is already clinical evidence that if embryos with abnormal cells are transferred to mothers, they have the potential to develop into normal babies.
0: And this is very important because there's a lot of older mothers who are going through IVF who are being told all your embryos are chromosomally abnormal. We can't use any of them. And we're talking about tens of thousands of embryos, I think, maybe in America. It could be that um, they've got much better, much more options. There's obviously a Mm -hmm. lot of work to be done, so it's quite an important uh, result. Anyway, that's... Enough uh, from me and from the panel. It would be great to um, get some questions from the audience. Who'd like to put your hand up, and then we'll, we'll whiz a microphone over. So we've got a gentleman uh, over there, and anyone? And there's a lady in front of him, so perhaps we can get a second microphone. Oh, actually, you can just hand that one over, can't you? That's easier. There we go. Fire away.
4: So this is a question for Nora. Um, on your slide, you showed the actual early embryo. And you show the different sort of so the different genes. What my question is actually, what's the characterization technique that you used? And I realise that's software that you've used to sort of like produce the actual cell or the embryo. I apologise, but um, I don't know. I don't understand how you how can you differentiate between the different genes? How do you do that?
2: So you mean in the embryo where I show the different colours? Yeah. Uh, but yeah so the image that I showed um, is the result of um, An experiment uh, another tool that we use called immunohistochemistry and in this tool we use um, what are called antibodies and different antibodies will recognize different proteins so um, we have an antibody that recognizes CDX2 so wherever whatever cell expresses CDX2 the antibody will bind to and then gives off a fluorescent signal so that's how we're able to differentiate um, between the the cells
4: so do you use a photodiode to... So to, when it emits the light, use a photodiode to then differentiate. So if it emits more light, it's just this gene, and then it emits less light, it's just this gene.
2: Yeah, so it's a, a fluorescence analysis, yeah. And so the different antibodies are conjugated or they are linked to different uh, fluorophores that emit at different wavelengths. So that's how you're able to detect the different colours. Mm-hmm.
0: And in fact, Marta's lab uses... You, you've got beautiful... Um, images of very early embryos labelling, using very clever chemical labels to show different uh, genes and different molecules and so on. Let's have the next uh, question. Thanks.
5: Hiya. Um, In terms of mice being used in your research for embryotic um, development, as it's been proven in sort of cancer research and heart research, how useful is using different animals rodents, skinny pigs etc is there not more of a development to a sort of an artificial human sense like a sort of I don't know what's the word Um, a host that isn't which is artificial because it's proven that animals are not the same as humans we're all very different all different animals have very different reproductive heart cancer choose like the way the body develops is using, you guys saying mice, the right thing to be using?
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe Marta's uh, the best uh, I, I will give one example. So we were able to culture the embryos for longer because the method was initially developed for mouse embryos. So this method was developed over five, six years, constantly being improved. Once we had it perfectly working in the mouse, we moved to the human. And it just worked the same method. But you are absolutely right. There are lots of difference in terms of development between both species. But the only way to really know which difference we have is to study both and compare. Yeah. And not only mouse, but the people are starting to study also primates as a more of an intermediate species.
0: And in fact, Doug, for your work, you must have drawn a lot of animal research to get yeah. ethical yeah. approval. Um, the, the
3: technique we use was invented in mouse embryos mm. in 1983. So without that work mm-hmm. in mouse embryos, we would not be able to do it. But rather like Marta and Nora, of course, when we actually come to do it in mouse embryos and work that's been done in primate embryos, they're very different from human embryos. Yes. So I, I think we, we build up a body of work which is uh, using, using mice... But then that's why it is important if we're going to understand what's happening in human disease or what we're going to, or preventing human disease or understanding human embryo development,
0: eventually the work's got to move into humans. Mm. Let's take some. Oh, God, do you want to? If
5: you're searching things in mice and they're different, thank you, and they're different um, diseases. Humans must have different diseases to mice. That's a proven fact. There's different things that happen to mice and rabbits, for example. Is starting with mice going forward and going into primates a a good thing, or should we start being like using artificial hosts that are developed around a human and what a human experiences in terms of their body? or is doing this like trial and error through all these different animals and species
2: actually the right way to go so i think it depends on the context so obviously with animal research we all work under the 3 r's which are refine reduce replace so we would like to minimize the number of animals that are used for research so if there isn't an appropriate if there is a if there is an appropriate model that you can use instead of mice or other animals, then you should use that. So in our um, experiments, um, we used mouse embryos to test what the most appropriate settings for the micro-injection uh, would be, and this, is, this was because the um, like almost the physics of injecting into a mouse zygote would be the same as injecting into the human zygote. And because we only had 50 human zygotes donated to our project, we, had to make, we couldn't use those to try out the different pressure of the injections. So we had to use the mouse, embryo, the mouse embryos for that. But what we now want to do... Um, the, the reason why we want to study the human embryo is because, for example, um, preeclampsia, which is um, a problem with the human placenta, you don't get that disease in mice because the placentas are completely different. So to to study preeclampsia in the mouse would be completely inappropriate. Um, And uh, talking about different models that you can use instead of the mouse, human embryonic stem cells, we want to use these so that we can look at the human um, green cells because this would be the equivalent. But because we don't yet have... Um, human trophoblast stem cells, we have to use the mouse ones until we've um, generated the human the human equivalent. So I think in some contexts, you can study in the human o- only, but then in others, you have to do it in the mouse. And then because the human embryos are such a scarce resource, and everyone that's donated to our research, we want to make sure that the experiment is as likely to succeed as possible that's why we do try to refine the techniques in the mouse embryo.
0: In fact, Nora, maybe another way to, to look at it is you're 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 looking at the genes to do with the basic control and development. And actually, one of the fascinating things is we do share an awful lot of genes with mm-hmm. mice. So of those basic developmental genes, are there some that are really pretty much identical to mice genes?
2: Um, so... Well, one interesting thing that we found from looking at OCT4 is that it's completely different in the human and in the mouse.
0: Okay, except for OCT4, of course. Um, <laughs> in the placenta,
2: the placenta cells, um, the majority of the, the genes that are really important for the mouse trophectoderm, which are the mouse placenta cells, are completely different from the human. So it looks like oh, there's... Oh, wow, so there are a lot of differences yeah, then. Okay. Yeah.
1: Because there are but other there,
0: things, like cell division, which really are controlled by very similar machinery across lots of animals
1: and so on, yeah. There, Sorry, there are know. similarities as well. So, for example, by looking at the development of the human embryos beyond day seven, we could observe the formation of a structure called the amniotic cavity. This will form the amnion. It's like a protective sac around the baby. And how this amniotic cavity is formed in the mouse and in the human, the initial step to form it is the same. Hmm.
0: Let's have more questions. There's two here in the front. Going far away, and then then there's one just behind. So
4: I actually have two questions which are quite different. My first is, um, if you could ignore all of the regulatory restrictions that you're currently under, what experiments would you like to do or do you think maybe could could (laughs) be done or possibly should be done, but maybe not? And my second question... I can't quite remember, so if you answer that one first, then I'll come back to you. (laughs)
2: Okay. Would Um, anyone
0: dare answer that
4: question?
2: For me, I think that there's so much that we still don't know about the first 14 days, even the first seven days. I think I would be happy to work within the regulation or the regulatory framework that we have. Um, I think there's always a temptation to be the first to do something cool, But there's still so much that we can learn, and everything that we learn is just a building block to building up the the bigger picture. That I think, I'd be happy to work within the framework.
0: Marta, do you want to create an artificial embryo and well, that is
1: well, (laughs) I don't think we could do that, right? We wouldn't even have the technology. That would
0: be very hard,
6: yes.
1: But somehow, in my experience, what I feel is that the regulations, the only thing, the only negative aspect, let's say is that they delay the work, right? So if there were no regulations, I would just do things faster, in a way, right? I don't, I don't feel in my daily work that there are all these rules, so I cannot go there, I cannot go here. As Nora said, we have so much to do. Just whenever we want to even do a small change in our protocol or test something new, we have to apply. So all this requires a new application, and this may take up to a year, right?
0: So less paperwork, I think. Did you remember your next question? Go on, fire away.
4: So this is a bit more of a kind of sci-fi question, but do you think there'll be a point where there'll be more people using IVF than getting pregnant naturally in order to control for all of these uncontrollable elements of pregnancy? I hope not. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Having seen what the poor women have to go through to be, uh, go through IVF, I don't think it's anything like mm. pleasurable. So I, I, I think we should stick. <laughs> with, <laughs> I, I think we should stick with uh, it, my 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 own view is uh, that that um, um, human reproduction has been working for a very long time, um, and I, I I genuinely think that these techniques uh, we know something about the risk of these techniques, but you know. You know, nobody's really looked in great detail at some of these techniques as whether subtle differences. Um, and for something to replace something, it's a bit like sometimes when you develop drugs. If you develop drugs for rare conditions, then the risk profile can be, can be quite... You, you can have a bit of risk. If you develop drugs which are going to treat hypertension or, or high, lip, high lipids... You've got to have no risk profile. So, I still think that personally, well certainly in my lifetime, I suspect your lifetime, and I suspect everybody's lifetime, I I, I don't think this will replace.
0: Let's have, uh, there's another question just. Oh, sorry, did have I cut you
2: um, off? I, I was going to say pardon. one thing. Gone, I on. think one thing that, um, I'm not sure exactly how to phrase my answer, but I think one thing that we could, or not just one thing, but like there's a lot of societal effects that. Could kick in to also help um, with natural conception. So, like one of the reasons why people are going for IVF is because they're having women are having babies much later. If the government was to bring in um, flexible working for women, uh, subsidised childcare, um, if house prices could be lower so that people yeah. are able, people have the security to begin family building in their early 30s, late 20s then maybe that could also prevent people going for I- so much IVF, um, yeah.
4: Next uh, question. Um,
2: my question is about the 14-day
4: rule you were talking about. I know um, since quite recently, um, Mary Warnock, who was the one who kind of recommended that limit, has mm-hmm. kind of come out and said, I I regret maybe making such a decision because it was a bit arbitrary, um, do you, foresee and there's kind of been legal debate around maybe extending it because we have reached kind of the edge of it do you maybe foresee within the next 10 years that that limit might change and might be extended
0: that's one for you martin yeah i mean
1: 10 years is quite a long period right so it may happen i mean I, i of course i don't know but it may happen at the end it will be a decision that will involve the public, it will involve the researchers, it will involve clinicians. And the important thing will be to weigh the benefits and the drawbacks of changing it. So if we all, as a community, decide there are really important reasons to extend it, then it will.
0: And the interesting thing is, as you allude to, that the debate started, what was it at the Institute for Child Health, that's where Mary Warnock was speaking. and. Uh Um, Magda Zernika-Gertz was talking about this work and then there was a huge Observer article about it so it's already being chewed over. Mm -hmm. Let's have another uh, question. There's a gentleman right over there at the back. How
6: do you think that the different levels of regulations around the world will affect the overall development of this field of study? Say if one country has one regulation and another country has another regulation, how will the dialogue work?
3: Okay, so I, 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 can, I can speak to some of that. So quite clearly in some countries there is no regulation. The first three-parent baby to prevent mitochondrial disease was done in Mexico by, a, by a, somebody who works in New York but went to Mexico to get around the regulation. Um, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Um, um, I, I think... Those of us that work in the field, and certainly in my, my opinion, that what we're trying to do is develop a clinical service, not an IVF technique. So lack of regulation will allow people to make a lot of money and not necessarily do the right thing by women. So, so from a clinical perspective, I'm just saying I think it's really important that we have mm. some regulation. And I'm a big fan of regulation in the UK because I think it allows us to make sure that there's true quality control. It's the same reason I'm a big fan of the NHS because I think people should get health care at the point of what they needed. I understand it's very different in other societies. But just from a disease perspective, <coughs> I can see the way in which the... That the different regulation is having an effect and it may well develop so there's health tourism so people are going out and getting techniques Mm. done in other countries that again I think is bad but I think will inevitably happen
0: in fact one thing I'd just like to pick up on um, uh, with with Nora and Doug is um, there's been in my sort of 30 years of reporting a big change in attitude um, to what's called germline Gene alteration, where when 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 we first talked about doing gene therapies sort of in the early well, early 90s or so, um, everyone said you really mustn't tamper with the germline at all. You mustn't make genetic changes that are past to future generations. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we've got CRISPR that provides what could be a safe way to do it, because a lot of the early concerns were were about safety. And in the case of mitochondria, as, as you pointed out, Doug, if you get another woman's mitochondria, you're actually making a genetic change that's going to be passed on to all her children if you have a, 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 a girl baby. So we, there's been a fascinating shift in opinions there, I think. I mean,
3: when, so... Again, I don't want to seem like I'm just a great fan of the UK, but, you know, it's always not. But we we were very lucky to live in the environment that we do because we actually had a very extensive, um, um, independent, ethical review by the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, which is an independent review body. And the, the, the thing, I mean, maybe... They basically said that they felt if it was safe and if, if efficient, then it should move forward. But one of the questions they did raise was that this is, in fact, germline. And that's a barrier that people, some people find it difficult to move beyond. However, it was one of the things that went out to public consultation. And it was one of the issues which was actually discussed, not with with the greatest respect and interested audience, it was a true public consultation where they went out and took you know, a reflective section of the, a, a city's society. And germline modification was one of the things that they discussed. And I think I agree with you entirely, Roger, that if that germline modification is something that is going to prevent serious disease mm-hmm. and prevent it potentially through generations, the view was that that's
0: a good thing. Not everybody's view, but the consensus view. And it was just a counterexample of the question because actually you you get the sense there's a patchwork quilt of regulation, but strangely enough, if you asked anyone about germline gene therapy 30 years ago, they would have said it's a complete no-no and it's fascinating how opinions have changed. Let's, um, Let's have another question here. This gentleman here with the glasses. Um. (laughs) OK, without the glasses. Um, Obviously, you're still early in the research you're doing with uh, mitochondrial replacement and um, other germline therapies. Has there been any look at costing, and is it a worry of yours that such costing will put it outside the reach of the NHS
6: and thus make these therapies only available to those of means rather than those who rely on the NHS for treatment?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's a very good question. I, I think, um, so, so again, I run a, a, an NHS service, um, um, which is one of the, the, the few highly specialised services. So anybody in the UK can come to our centre, which is why we have 900 patients. Um, um, and the cost issue does come up. But if you do an analysis about how much it costs to prevent a child having mitochondrial disease versus how much it costs to have a child with mitochondrial disease. Prevention is a lot cheaper than actually looking after patients with mitochondrial disease who might have many years of disability, who might have many years of actually needing you know, very expensive care, requiring ventilatory support. And I have many patients that you know, the whole change, you know, I have a lady that's actually been you know, required home ventilation for the best part of 15 years now and the costs of that are considerable now she has a very good quality of life and that you know clearly justified so I think if you do the sums it actually works out as being an advantage let's have a couple more
0: questions um I've been neglecting this side of the audience so over here and then there's two more here
5: hi so i guess my question leads on from the ethical debate really and that um we've read recently that a sheep has been managed to develop without a womb so in an artificial womb so i guess my question is will we ever get that far with humans and if we do how do we make sure that the ethical considerations keep up with the scientific
0: developments so it's something out of Aldous Huxley, isn't it, or Haldane? Doug, do you want to? Uh, right. So I think we've. I think
3: we've got to have public debates about this. I, I think it's an issue that is one of the reasons why this event's happening, isn't it? That people are genuinely interested in this. Um, I, I, I think um, certainly with the ethical debates we, we, that we've been involved in, um, I, I think there's always going to be two sides. And and I, But 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 you know. I think those debates have got to happen where there is consensus about, well, what's, what's right and where where should you stop? Um, and again, I can't think of another way of doing that. You know, but mm-hmm. Rogers just mentioned about the germline side of things. 30 years ago, we would not have been able to get this through. Now there's been a softening. Do we think about mm. gene editing? What do we think about preventing cystic fibrosis? Huntington's yeah. career, you know, there's all sorts of diseases that you could think, <clears throat> well, look, actually, you know, the treatments, some treatments there, is it better to prevent or whatever? I think that's a big debate that we're gonna have mm-hmm. over the next few years as society is these techniques. I mean, Nora showed me you can change a gene. So which gene would you change and why would you change it? And I think those are things that have got to be openly discussed. And I think we've got to listen to what the general public say I think as scientists we've got to be receptive and we've got to we've got to hear what what people think are appropriate
0: you often see a cycle of acceptance where people there's a yuck factor when people first hear about research and that was certainly the way that um, the prospect of the first IVF baby was greeted Once people understood the joy that this technique would bring to couples who could not have a child by other means, attitudes softened and changed and became more sophisticated. Um, Anyway, let's have more questions. There were a couple more. Um, There's a lady here and a lady there at the back, and hopefully we've we've got time to squeeze in a few more. There we are, that one there.
2: Hi. I just wanted to know if one day you think that we're going to edit genes to the point of, Being like aesthetic choosing like if we're getting a boy or a girl and I think it's quite controversial and do you think that is gonna go further that point without like society being more about aesthetic and having all the choice in the world really so again I think it will come back to regulation Um, so at the moment there's um, pre-implantation genetic diagnostics and for this is where you can test an embryo to see if it has a disease-associated gene. But for PGD in the UK, there's a very specific list of genes that you're allowed to test for, and mm-hmm. this is a list of genes that is associated that are associated with horrible diseases. Um, so you're not allowed to just go in and be like, "Does this baby will the, Does this baby have blue eyes?" So I think again, if if Um, genome editing is something that begins to be used in the clinic, I would imagine in the UK it'll be, again, a really defined set of uh, genes that you'll be able to use it for. And, again, it'll be a set of genes that public consensus has reached. Um, Again, in other countries where there's no regulation, perhaps they will start to use that, but... um, I think it's up for society to decide what they think is appropriate. It's
0: a big ask, though, because, you know, we, we really don't understand that much about how genes turn... in. You know, things like mm. skin That's colour, thing, yeah. eye colour, really complicated. You'd be surprised. Yeah. I mean, isn't that right? Yeah, intelligence,
2: surprised. like, is it nature or nurture? What is
0: intelligence? We can't even really define mm. that. You know, it's mm. a really tricky area. So um, I think we're a long way off that. Let's. I think we're going to try and squeeze in a couple more... Lady over here, and maybe one more afterwards as well. Fire away.
6: Um, I have two questions, one of which really follows on, I, I think, from immediately where we were, which is, um, which is if you're not getting to the point of, of um, being able to make or choosing to make those decisions on aesthetic grounds, could you get to a point when um, these various techniques are used to exclude disability to the extent that they're not simply excluding the disabilities that you get in the case of some of these mitochondrial diseases where they are very severe, but they could be used to exclude disabilities which at the moment people are living quite, quite um, happy and fulfilled lives with and actually therefore being used as a way of a a sort of, um, of an engineering of society in that sense. So that's my immediate question. Um, But I have a, a much sort of longer term question which is that if you can develop Um, a synthetic or artificial embryo Um, I know you're saying we don't have the technology at the moment to turn that in you know we don't have the technology to do it at the moment and if we we did have the technology to do it we wouldn't have the technology to turn that into a baby at the moment but is that something that if we were having this discussion in 40 or 50 years time we might be looking at So, Doug, would
3: you dare? Right, okay, so I'll let, I'll let Marta answer the second one. Uh, give her a bit of time to think <laughs> about it, right? Um, um, I don't think, right, so, so there's an awful lot of debate, you know, this, you know we get, always get designer babies is, is, the, is the kind of buzzword that, that goes round. I don't think society accepts the fact that there should be designer babies, and I hope we never. Get, my own personal view is I hope we never get to that stage. I just don't think it is. I don't think it's the way society sees these things. Um, the question about disability, and I think it's a really important question. That, that, that this? You know, if you're preventing disease, are you somehow diminishing what disability is? And I think it's a really it's a really important. Uh, um, discussion. I personally think that the way society is, that we are actually saying, well, look, we're trying to prevent really serious disease. We're not trying to. We're not trying to modify them. you know, whether it be. Uh, I suppose it's a difficult word to use, minor, but but things that people can perfectly happily live with. Um, and I think that's a that's a thing where. As it's, it's sense that, that the line at the moment, and the line which I think will stay there, is that the, we're talking about, and it's very clear in our, in, our, in our license, it's got to be severe disease. So that's where I think it is, and I think it's likely to stay for many years to come. And I hope, certainly in which regards designer babies in the UK, it will stay forever. But that's my own personal opinion, rather than others'. I I can see there might be a move to do that, and I think that those are precisely the reasons why we have a public debate about where it should and where it should not stop. So I I can see that uh, it's like anything else that you do in medicine. You can improve and improve. You know, the current current issue in medicine is that we keep, you know, um, we are straying off the subject, but, you know, if you think about what we can do about keeping people alive, and where do we stop with, you know, those, those quality of life? So
0: I think that's happening in all branches of medicine, not just in the yeah. IVF area. And ultimately, you're presented with a choice, a choice that you might never have had before. And I would have thought that's a good thing overall. But should we move yeah. to artificial uh, embryos yeah. as well?
1: So I think we will definitely have a debate in 40 years. I mean, it already mm-hmm. started in the scientific community. Also, because how do we define embryo? Are the laws that regulate human embryo research applicable to these synthetic stem cell embryos? Do they have any potentiality? So, all these questions, I don't think we have answers at the moment. And the debate will just continue to grow and grow and grow as scientists um, find new things and develop new techniques. Absolutely. And indeed, I mean, this is an example, let's call it, of a half-synthetic embryo. This was published last year. It was done in the mouse. But basically, this research group, what they did was to take embryonic stem cells from the mouse, and they made oocytes, uh, so eggs, out of them. And they could fertilize them and make mouse. So half of the embryo came from stem cells. And it gave, like, that embryo could give rise to perfectly fine Mice. So that was like a half synthetic embryo, so we are definitely getting there.
0: I think on that extraordinary note, we'll have to draw the evening to an end, I'm afraid. Uh, thank you to the Manchester Science Festival and the Museum of Science and Industry for hosting this. Thank you for those brilliant questions, and please give a warm hand of applause to our brilliant speakers. Thank you very much. <laughs>
2: Welcome.